0: This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Donnelly. Our guest this week is Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, the voice of milk. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with RFA's Jeff Cooper next Edge provides dairy farmers in eight Midwestern states with a strong voice, the voice of milk, in Congress, with customers, and within their communities. Edge is an energetic, progressive organization that represents all dairy farmers equally, recognizing both their differences and similarities. Now the number four dairy cooperative in the country in terms of amount of milk produced by its members, Edge is amplifying the voice of its farmers. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Learn more At voiceofmilk.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The renewable fuels industry has increased its production capacity nearly five fold over the past three and a half decades to nearly 16 billion gallons last year. Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, says the biggest challenge isn't producing more fuel. It's breaking down the legislative and regulatory barriers that are preventing real demand growth for their product.
1: Today in the U.S., we consume about 140 billion gallons of gasoline annually. Nearly all of that is E10, 10% ethanol. So right there, there's demand for 14 billion gallons of, of ethanol. We're producing about 16 billion annually, so obviously we're producing 2 billion gallons more than we can consume domestically in E10 blends currently. We've been working very hard as an industry the last uh, number of years to expand that blend rate from 10 percent up to 15 percent. We do have approval from the EPA to do that. We have had approval from the EPA for six or seven years, and we are seeing some retail gas stations um, offering E15 today, but it's only available at about 1,500 stations nationwide, so about 1 percent of our gasoline stations are offering E15. And, and the reason it hasn't grown more rapidly or expanded more broadly is not because of economics and it's not because of, of any efficiency issues or anything like that. It's, it's strictly because of regulatory red tape and bureaucratic regulations that need to be fixed and haven't been fixed that are keeping that product out of the market. So we think if we can address some of those barriers, those, those regulatory barriers, and we're in the process of doing that, we think E15 can grow very rapidly Uh, It can expand nationwide, just like we saw with E10, and that would certainly help shore up domestic demand. But at the same time, we're looking offshore and building export markets and are looking at record export demand this year. And that's been a godsend to really help try to restore some balance to our supply-demand situation.
0: Let's start with a broader stroke and then narrow it down. Uh, The administration is working toward year-round sales of E15. That in itself, is it enough to solve your woes?
1: not in the short term. We think long term, it absolutely will grow the market and, and create new demand opportunities domestically. But we're waiting on EPA to, to even get started with the regulatory process that is required to allow year-round E15. They have committed to do that in February, start that process. They have committed to have it finished by May 31st of 2019. And the reason that date is important is if it's not done by then, then we're going to see the same thing happen that, that has happened the last six years, which is retailers in, in two thirds of the gasoline market have to stop selling E15 on June 1st because, you know, again because of this 30-year-old antiquated regulation at EPA that that uh, they haven't gotten around to fixing yet. So we do have a promise from EPA. We we had you know a very clear directive from the president himself to alleviate this barrier and make this fix in time for summer 2019. And we think if that happens, E15 is going to grow. It's 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 not going to be a silver bullet for our demand issues, and it's not going to resolve everything overnight, but it certainly is going to be the right signal to the marketplace at the right time and sets us up well for the long term.
0: Again, using the broader stroke, I'm thinking of the auto industry, and for them, tomorrow is today. Uh, what direction are they looking for from Washington? Because, as I've understood, you've done some work that is showing there's a higher volume of cars coming off the assembly line that can run on renewable fuels. But I sense an industry that, that's really looking for, for a direction from Washington.
1: Well, I, I think that's right. They are searching for direction and guidance on how they should be thinking about the future and, and mobility. And vehicle technologies. They are today approving the use and, and including in their warranty statements and owner's manuals uh, approval to use E15 in nearly every new automobile that is sitting on a, a car lot today. And in fact, more than 90% of the vehicles on the road today uh, are legally approved by EPA to use E15. And so we are moving in that direction, but longer term, further term, the autos are looking at what can be done to get more bang for their buck and and improve efficiency and reduce emissions with internal combustion engines. Of course they're going to be focused on building some electric vehicles and, and looking at electrification and autonomous vehicles and, and those sorts of things, but they also recognize that that's really still decades off. I mean, we, we see EVs on the roads today, but they represent far less than 1% of the cars on the road today, and the internal combustion engine is going to be around for a very long time, and so the autos are interested in finding uh, pathways to improving the efficiency of those internal combustion engines. And one very promising pathway that they have found is the use of a higher octane fuel in a engine that has a higher compression ratio and has probably has you know turbocharging and has been downsized. They can improve the efficiency of that engine You know, between 5 and 10 percent, and that translates to better fuel economy and reduced emissions and helps them meet their federal regulatory requirements to improve fuel economy. So, we see a real role for ethanol in that equation as well because ethanol, of course, is the highest octane fuel additive available on the market today. And if done right, we think ethanol could be kind of the, the key ingredient in a, in a future high-octane fuel that the autos are today asking for.
0: With regard to higher octane fuels and, and higher combustion engines, are we behind the curve for the world, or would this be an advance to the rest of the world?
1: We're actually behind the rest of the world on this issue. Today in Europe, their standard gasoline, their regular grade, has the same octane level as our premium grade here in the U.S., So they're using basically premium gasoline in all of their vehicles today in Europe, and they are seeing some benefit to that. When you look at uh, fuel economy in Europe compared to the U.S., they certainly have an advantage. So we are playing catch-up to to Europe and, and other parts of the world there has been a you know lots of discussion about at least moving to that level to a 95 RON octane gasoline, which again is premium, and and that would kind of be the standard grade of gasoline nationwide. There's been discussion amongst the autos and and our industry and the refining industry, and there's actually been some legislation introduced around that concept of moving to a premium-grade gasoline as our standard. We think we ought to go beyond that because there's even more efficiency to gain and and further emissions reductions that can occur if you go beyond that level of octane, and that would put us in a leadership role around the world if we skipped over 95 Ron and went straight to 98 Ron, which would be you know equivalent to about a 93... AKI octane level, the, the, you know, the number you see on the pump.
0: So what happens if Washington continues to dawdle on this issue and makes no change in its policy?
1: Well, I think what happens is, is you know, we fall further behind the rest of the world in terms of smart policies to address greenhouse gas emissions and, and improve efficiency and continue that market transformation from fossil fuels to renewables. You know, if we continue to, to sit around with our head in the sand here, We're going to get left behind.
0: During this lame duck session of Congress, there was a hearing looking at the 21st Century uh, Transportation Fuels Act. Uh, Mr. Shimkus and Mr. Flores talking about making a transition to a higher octane and sunsetting the RFS. At first blush, how does RFA feel about their proposal?
1: You would think that any effort to raise the octane level of our gasoline in the U.S., would be good for ethanol because, as I said, ethanol is the highest octane source on the market. It's also the cheapest source of octane on the market. But the Shimkus-Flores bill, unfortunately, trades a high-octane fuel standard for the RFS. And so the idea is, well, you know, we start a a higher-octane fuel standard in 2023, but the RFS gets killed off. And we've looked at several studies and, and analyses that show today's fleet of refineries Could meet a higher octane fuel standard at the level that was specified by Mr. Shimkus and and Mr. Flores without really blending any more ethanol. So they'd continue to make E10 and they'd get that extra octane boost from more hydrocarbons and running their refineries and their reformers at their refineries more severely and using more energy and upgrading some of those low octane fractions of the crude oil barrel to higher octane and, and that's how they would meet that standard. We're not interested in that. We think a a higher octane fuel standard can work in tandem with the renewable fuel standard and and could layer on top of a renewable fuel standard. And that way, the RFS would ensure that when refiners go to raise the octane of their gasoline, they're choosing that renewable, lower cost, higher octane fuel source, which is uh, ethanol.
0: Some see 2022 as an end game and a reason to make changes in energy policy now. Do you buy into that thought?
1: Well, I mean that that really was sort of the impetus behind this proposal from Mr. Shimkus and Mr. Flores. That you know their 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 argument is: look, uh, in 2023, uh, EPA takes the reins entirely on the RFS program, and the volumes that were specified by Congress cease to exist. And so now you're you're leaving it up to to EPA, and and certainly there is some uncertainty around that. You know, it really depends on who is in the White House and who's the administrator at EPA, we don't really know how that process is going to work out because it's four years away. So there is some uncertainty, and that does give us some concern. But the way to address that uncertainty is not to just kill off the program. The way to address that uncertainty is to figure out ways of bringing more rationality and certainty to how those volumes will be set and what those might look like uh, after 2022. The RFS does not go away. That is a common misnomer that's out there. It does not end in 2022. The volumes that were specified by Congress end in 2022 and then it's up to EPA to set those volumes from there forward.
0: Speaking of EPA, the small refinery waivers, how much did that cost your industry and how much is it costing your industry if reallocation doesn't occur?
1: We were very pleased when EPA came out in late part of 2016 and said the 2017 RFS for conventional biofuel is going to be 15 billion gallons, and that's what Congress uh, had specified in the law, and so for the first time in a while, EPA was following the law and setting that volume where it was supposed to be. Well, much later, we came to find out that that was not a real number. That 15 billion gallon number was significantly eroded by these small refinery exemptions that former Administrator Scott Pruitt was handing out, To virtually every refinery that was asking for one whether they were able to demonstrate economic hardship or not they were getting a free pass and and a bailout from complying with the the rfs and so that 15 billion gallon requirement on paper really became something more like a requirement for 13.7 or 13.8 billion gallons And, you know, the result was a flood of compliance credits back onto the market, and, you know, we saw the value of those REN compliance credits just collapse. And we're still suffering the the effects of that uh, today. I talked about just the the really very poor operating conditions that we're seeing in the marketplace today and, and poor margin conditions, and a lot of that traces right back to these small refinery exemptions and the fact that EPA took the pressure off the domestic industry to increase its ethanol blending. And by relieving that pressure, we've seen ethanol prices collapse. We've seen inventories rise. We've seen some economic analysis that concluded the damage to our industry through lower ethanol demand and lower ethanol prices that came from the small refiner exemptions is on the order of $2 billion. So It's quite significant. We've taken EPA to court over its mismanagement of the small refinery provisions, and and we're hoping that that lost volume, that lost demand, is reallocated, is reapportioned, is given back to the industry, either as a consequence of legal action or EPA and the administration coming to its senses and, and understanding that what they took away from us, they need to give back.
0: Do you see a new direction from a new leader at EPA?
1: Well, we do think Acting Administrator Wheeler is approaching this issue much more thoughtfully. Um, I mean, I think he understands the political danger of mismanaging the, this provision. He, he saw what happened with with Administrator Pruitt and, and the heavy controversy and, and pressure that, that followed when it became public what was going on. And the other thing is, I, I think it's going to be really hard for any refinery To argue today that the RFS is somehow causing them economic hardship when the price of those compliance credits is, you know, 10 or 15 cents compared to the 90 cents or a dollar that it was uh, a year or a year and a half ago when Mr. Pruitt started handing out these exemptions.
0: If the Shimkus-Floris bill were to see traction with a new lead of energy and commerce, how would RFA stand on that proposal as written?
1: Well, you know, I think that's an unlikely scenario. I I think the new leadership of House Energy and Commerce is going to have different priorities and different interests. You know, they may look at the Shimkus-Flores bill as a starting point for some discussions but they have lots of other things that they would want to uh, prioritize and and focus on. We do think high octane should remain on the table and should be one of those things that that committee continues to examine and and think about. But the Democratic leadership on that committee is supportive of the the renewable fuel standard and and, and is supportive of advanced and cellulosic biofuels and, and would be opposed to just cutting off the program and definitively ending it as the Shimkus bill uh, proposed to do. We do think it may be a starting point for a conversation in the next Congress, but there's going to be much more focus on climate and greenhouse gas emissions and, and carbon on that committee than there was under Republican leadership.
0: What does your crystal ball say for Congress in 2019 toward renewable fuel?
1: Well, I think what I just said is going to be true for for the larger Congress as well. I, I, you know, with the Democrats in, in control in the House now, Um, I I do think there will be much more focus on uh, climate change and and how energy policy and environmental policy can work together to uh, combat uh, climate change and and look at solutions for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, That's not something there's been much discussion of the last few years for for obvious reasons. Uh, But I I do think that is going to come back to the fore. Um, I also think our industry has a great story to tell, uh, with regard to to those issues, um, and, and we can show that blending more ethanol uh, is going to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions from liquid transportation fuels, and it's going to help reduce uh, other pollutants, uh, tailpipe uh, criteria pollutants. Um, so we're you know we're, we're thinking that that's going to be much more front and center uh, in the new Congress. And, and uh, like I said, we have a good story to tell, and we're excited to tell it.
0: Most of our conversation to this point has been geared on the domestic market, but there is a growing list of countries, including Canada and, yes, China, that are talking about renewable fuels and higher blends of transportation liquid fuels. How important is that export market and access to that export market for your membership?
1: Well, the export market has been tremendously important uh, this year. I've, I've mentioned the, the challenges we're facing in the domestic market, uh the export market has been phenomenal in, in helping restore some semblance of balance in our supply and demand uh, equation. And we are expecting record export demand uh, for 2018, something on the order of 1.6 or 1.7 billion gallons of exports. So, you know, one out of every 10 gallons we're making today is leaving the country and, and being exported to other markets. And, and again, 10, 15 years ago, no one would have believed uh, that, that, w- that we would be exporting 10% of our output today. Um, so, you know, I think the industry has done a phenomenal job in developing uh, that demand internationally, and, and we are seeing very strong demand from markets like Canada and places like Brazil, um, which is the number two leading ethanol producer in the world, yet they have been the number one importer of U.S. ethanol this year. Um, simply because their their demand is is uh, higher than their supply and their ability to to satisfy that demand. Um, but also places like India um, other places uh in in North Africa and and the Middle East are are importing uh significant volumes of of ethanol. Uh, Southeast Asia we're seeing growth there, places like Korea and Japan. Um, so we we truly are seeing a a global market, a robust global market, develop uh, for ethanol. We're very excited about that. But we do face barriers there as well, and and our our largest one one is in China. Um, A few years ago, China was our number three export market for ethanol. It was our top market for our co-product, distiller's grains exports. Um, And today, there's virtually no ethanol or distiller's grains going into China because of tariffs that they have put on those products partially as a uh, response to uh you know the, the 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 trade war that we see going on uh between the u.s and china so that that's been uh, significantly detrimental to our industry the the lack of access we have had to the chinese market you know at the same time that china is trying to develop their own domestic ethanol industry and and grow their own market internally um they have a, a, a goal of, of blending 10% ethanol nationwide by 2020. Uh, there's just no way they're going to meet that goal without importing some product uh, from other suppliers. And, and that would uh, appear to be a boon to the U.S., uh, but only if we can access that market uh, duty-free or, or certainly at reduced tariff rates than what we see today.
0: Well, Jeff Cooper, we want to thank you very much for spending time with us on this edition of Open Mic. Jeff, it is Open Mic, and you have the last word today.
1: Well, Jeff, I mean, I, you know, I, I think one thing that I've been focusing on and I really want to make a focus for, for RFA moving forward is we've just got to do everything we can to ensure that our markets, both domestically and internationally, are, are open for competition. That's all we're asking for is a fair chance to compete and and we're convinced that given that opportunity and that access to the consumer the consumer is going to choose our product it's lower cost today we're 25 cents under gasoline it's cleaner we are displacing toxic components from gasoline and lowering criteria pollutants it's better for the climate we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions and it's made domestically so we think given the choice Consumers, every time, are going to choose our product. They're going to choose ethanol, but only if they're able to make that choice in, in a free and open and competitive marketplace. So there's a lot of barriers that we need to address to ensure those conditions exist and, and give consumers that choice. And that's that's going to be our focus moving forward at RFA.
0: Our thanks to Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, the voice of milk. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.